Tyler Foley is the author of The Power to Speak Naked. This episode, Tyler teaches us how to become a better speaker using storytelling, as well as how to adapt to changes in your life or career. I do speaker training, obviously, and uh, The Power to Speak Naked was a title that had come uh, from the training sessions that I do, um, mostly based around a philosophy where I said I would rather I don't like that advice that people are given. It's horrible advice to picture your audience naked or picture them in your underwear. Mm. Like it's just, it is the worst advice to ever give a speaker. Cause I, and I don't know how it serves a speaker or their audience. So mm. I had gone on this riff about how I'd rather give somebody the power to speak naked than yeah. to have them trying to picture their audience naked. Right. And, uh, and that's how kind of the training course. And then subsequently the book came to be, cause the book is just a, um, a, a transcription <laughs> of the audio from all of the video from my training sessions. So, so the two go hand in hand, but I, I do give, uh, uh, you know, kind of a one hour teaser talk, right? The free one, come in, find out more about me. If you like it, I'll sign you up for the big training courses, either yeah. the two and a half day seminar or the five day workshop. So, um, I was giving this one hour talk. And there was a guy in the back who was like, take off your clothes, naked boy. And I was like, dude, man, this is not the time nor the, the venue to do that. But uh, he was really persistent yeah. about it. Like, and it was, it was, it was funny at first and everybody got a chuckle out of it. But mm. this guy was, um, he wasn't letting it go. Mm. And I, and I had to defuse the situation. So I was like, listen, sir, you know, I don't know that you have, uh, enough money to to see me naked you know tyler tyler costs a lot yeah <laughs> to get his clothes off he's like you're just scared you're just chicken i'm like no actually you know what i uh i'm not i have <laughs> been a performer most of my life i am very comfortable in my own skin literally and metaphorically so if you're willing to agree to come back here in mm. a week um and it was an easy thing for me to say because um, as kind of like a, a backup or insurance or redundancy, anytime I'm booking a venue, I always book it for two, two dates, uh, just in case we have to cancel, it makes it easier to then reschedule. And, uh, so I did have this theater booked for the, the following week as well as part of redundancy. Mm. And I said, if you're willing to come back here in one week, yeah, I'm willing to do this entire presentation naked. Uh, but uh, everybody here has to pay five times more than what they paid. Yeah, you know, I think at the I think at the time we we're charging know, forty or fifty bucks to come. Right. So I want people to actually come and stay. I'm going to give them value for that. Yeah, but they're they I need people to actually come. So it was like four or five times what he was going to pay. Basically, everybody was pitching in. I think around two hundred bucks yeah. to come back. I said, I will donate all the proceeds to charity, mm. but, you know, legitimately, I can't take my clothes off right now. Uh, the venue would be angry with me. My insurance company would be angry with me. The promoter would be angry with me. Like, there's a lot of people who would be offended if I took my clothes off, <laughs> not to mention the hundred or so of you in the audience right now. Yeah. So uh, I said, if, you, if you're willing to do that, I, you know, my assistant is off stage right now looking at me terrified, but we'll get her to to sort stuff out yeah. and we'll collect the money, but all of you have to agree to do it right now. And if you all agree to do it, I will come back here in a week and, uh, 
and do this exact same talk but, but naked in the emperor's in the emperor's new clothes yeah and uh and they all agreed they're like yeah sure why not and i think a lot of people did it just out of curiosity i think some people did it uh good-natured because we were giving the money to the food bank yeah um <laughs> but i did and the funny thing is is again i'm comfortable doing it i'm willing to do it i'm happy to to i just because i just don't care uh, but I'll tell you, um, I was comfortable. The audience was not. <laughs> so yeah. I quickly found my way behind a podium just to put everybody else at ease. I was like, you guys thought I would. And I don't know what they thought. I thought maybe they thought I would do a bit of a strip tease or something, like take my clothes off. You on came stage. out like, no, naked. That. You came oh, yeah, stage I came out naked. naked. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I figured it, the other way was cheating. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because at that point, if you're just going to get naked on stage, you can prolong that as long as you want. And I was like, no, like the point is, is like, I legitimately want people to be so comfortable with their messaging that they could do what I did. Yeah. And now they may not be comfortable with, with their, their body or, you know, they may have other issues, but it can't be because they're afraid to go on stage. Yeah. And, and I, I really am. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've been in, in theater since I was six years old. And, you know, I, I mean, especially when you grow up in the theater, people are changing backstage. I've had, you know, a positive body image for <laughs> as long as, as I've been born, because especially because before you're six, you run around naked in the backyard, running no through one the cares. sprinkler. No one cares. Yeah. And so as I grew up, it just, it was never, um, nudity has never been a thing for me to be ashamed of mm. i it, it, it i just you know to to my detriment because now i have a six-year-old daughter and you know societally i should probably wear clothes in my house mm. more than what i do yeah well no <laughs> not really because it's a societal norm isn't it that, that you have to wear clothes you have to do this and you have to do that What's wrong with being naked? Yeah. It's the most natural way you can be. But nudity is like so hypersexualized and hyper kind of like, oh, no, no, no one should see you naked. Only you, your wife, and maybe someone in the gym who's a bit of a, a looky, looky person should see you naked. That's it. And the doctor, maybe. Yeah. 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 And, and, and your doctor only very specific exposed parts at very specific times. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and again, I'm, you know, I feel bad. I'm sure my neighbors have had peaks that they, they maybe hadn't hadn't invited just because like I will I will I'll just get up and I'll walk by and if somebody's flipped the the shades open yeah <laughs> I'm walking right by hey how you doing I'm on Tyler. my way to the bathroom yeah I full of Tyler oh that's a good title maybe that should be the follow-up book oh an wow. eye full of tyler yeah I've, I've got the eye of the tyler anyway there's so the many different the tyler. <laughs> there's so many different titles i could come up with so you've been performing from young which is you know a, a quite a common thing but then it's also one of those things that people i would say give up on but you've made it into a life long career so I, I guess we can kind of assume the acting side and all that kind of stuff is is where it is but on the speaking side of things, in the public speaking side of things, when did you first start doing public speaking? Was it like Toastmasters or was it, you know, for a, a seminar of a festival um, thing? So, the, no, the funny thing is, is like, you know, when you're a performer, you're you're always public speaking. And, and I would actually point out that everybody public speaks every day. Mm. 
right? We're just not necessarily doing it on stage to an audience, but Mm. society would crumble if we all didn't speak in public at some point, right? You couldn't go to a bank, you couldn't go to a restaurant, uh, you couldn't chat with a friend on the tube, you know what I mean? Like, so at some point you were speaking in public every day, but, um, and because I have been comfortable on stage and performing, I couldn't tell you the first time that I started to be a speaker mm. uh, because it's just something that I've always done, right? Like I was always the person everybody's like, oh, Tyler, you just, you know, you present the work, yeah. right? When you had to do the group work in school or uh, all the rest of that. So I've just, I've always been doing it. And then throughout my career, whether it was a company that I owned and I was the figurehead of it, or if it was a, a someone else's company that I worked for, I've always just kind of gravitated to those roles where I was required to to speak and present. Yeah. And so my speaking career has been very circuitous in its development. Mm. Um, you know, acting from on stage from six years old, retiring, semi-retiring from acting at 25, going back to school and getting an engineering discipline and starting my own company, uh, surveying firm aerial surveying firm at that too i got to play with a fleet of really small cessna planes which is fun um you know all of those things led to me speaking and then when the business collapsed i i moved into safety consulting and you're you're constantly speaking with people and clients like when i'm doing a safety audit i'm i'm interviewing employees usually you know sometimes a couple of hundred over the course of a 45 day period. Yeah. So, so you're, you're constantly talking with people. And so the, the, the career just kind of developed. Yeah. Like it's never there. I can't pinpoint that time where all of a sudden I took the stage for the first time and was a public speaker. Yeah. I would just, I just have been a public speaker. I do remember the first time I realized I could get paid for it. Okay. Tell, tell me about and, that. Yeah. So I, Again, I'd, I'd moved into safety consulting, mm. mostly because with the the mapping company, the aerial survey firm, um, when that is your, your primary product, mm. your primary client for that tends to be the government. Yeah. So think Google Maps, yeah. right? When you do the satellite view on Google Maps, I was the person taking those pictures and putting them together, stitching them together in the big mosaic so that you could look down at the ground and see where grandma's house was. Yeah. Right. Or find your nearest Starbucks or whatever it is you're happening to look for on Google Maps. And the government is the main user of that information and that data. They're the ones who are typically requesting these uh, photographs be taken and, and put together. And governments are very big proponents of having health and safety programs in place. So I had to get the safety training. And when the business collapsed, uh, my good friend, Matt, who is a genius businessman, uh, needed a safety officer. And he said, listen, Tyler, you've got all of this safety training already. If I pay for these two or three other courses that you need to actually get your designation, would you be willing to come and work for me? And I went, yeah, why not? You know, my, at that point, my business had just collapsed. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was feeling really dejected and I just needed a thing. Yeah. And the opportunity to work with him and his dad, who is a, um, one, <laughs> Eric is one of the smartest business people I've ever met. And I've known some really smart business people. My uncle 
uh, is was a, a, a very successful entrepreneur himself. And so like I've, I've, I've seen the influences. My, my best friend Jason has run many multi-million dollar companies. So like I, I've seen good business, but to work with the McLeans was was a, an opportunity that I just wasn't going to turn down. So yeah. Matt paid for these extra courses. I got my national construction safety officer designation and uh, went to work for him as a safety officer. And I was up at this, this massive, massive construction site um, in, in the North. But, you know, when they talk about the oil sands, I was working in the oil sands, dirty oil, dirty oil. <laughs> and we were building, um, you know, multi, multi, million dollar complex like yeah. uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to do fracking and all that kind of stuff uh no fracking is different this is oil sand so this is like they dig up big chunks of earth in these big open pit mines yeah and then run the the bitumen or bitumen through the um through extractors and they there's li the, there's literally oil dissolved into sand oh, right, and they okay. use these processes to separate oil from sand okay uh fracking is uh oil and gas that's caught in micro fractures between rock formations right. and they push in high pressure steam and and water to kind of force the the small 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 amounts of oil out to to push together so there is a difference between fracking and oil sands the nice thing about oil sands uh, which I don't think a lot of the world understands is that once said open pit mine has been uh, have they've extracted all the resource out of it that they want they can fill in that hole yeah they can't ever replace the oil in fracking yeah and uh, and when they do the reclamation of the oil sands it, it actually comes back very 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 pretty the processing is is rough on the environment but the reclamation of the land is actually quite quite easy to do so it was it was through the the through the mcleans you got into the, yeah. the oil business and well i wasn't even in the oil business so they were they were in construction we were building a plant yeah. for them um building a, a housing unit and i was on so it's a it's a dangerous environment yeah you know you're up in the oil sands you're doing construction and industrial um slash commercial instruct uh construction mm. and there was these guys that were working up on a ladder i think they were like 20 25 feet in the air because again very large open space mm. um industrial type complex and they're not tied off and they're leaning over and like they're everything about it was just dangerous yeah and i went on this rant i said to them listen I used to jump out of windows for a living. Yeah. And that was safer than what you're doing right now. And yeah. they kind of looked at me and I explained to them, you know, when I was in film and television in my early twenties, I did start to do stunt work. Yeah. Um, and because that was, it was cool and it was a new challenge and I'd been acting at that point for 15 years. So like, why not, why not get into stunts? I mean, that's, that's cool stuff. Yeah. And I specialized in high falls. So I explained to him, you know, when I was standing at the precipice of a six story window, 60 feet in the air, this was all the things that went into place so that I could jump out of that window and make it look dangerous and actually be safe. And I said, you don't have any of that. And if you were to have just even one misstep or one miscalculation, it is a long way to this concrete floor here. 
And one of the executives from one of the other firms that was helping build this heard me go on the rant. And he came up to me and he goes, is that true? I said, is what true? He's like, did you used to do stunts? I was like, oh, yeah. And then he asked me a few more questions. He said, listen, would you give that as, um, as, a, as a safety moment talk at the, at the meeting tomorrow? Yeah. I said, sure, why not? Happy to do it, yeah. right? Because I'm going to speak anytime somebody asks me to speak. Yeah, and you thought to yourself, well, I'm not going to get paid for this. I, just, I get to you know, have my soapbox and speak type thing. Exactly. So I just I just went and I gave, gave this little talk and you know there were, I think there was two, over 200 people yeah. that would come to these meetings in the morning because there was a lot of trades uh, representing a lot of different people on mm. that um, on that site. And one of the other executives from one of the big firms that was working with it was there that day and he goes that that was fascinating. Do you give that as as a talk? I said, well, no. This is actually the first time that I've said it, but I could give it as a talk. What what do you need? He's like, would you be willing to be the keynote at our annual safety stand down? Yeah, it's a big company wide thing. Everybody comes for a day, and we you know we talk safety. And I think yours would be a great great talk. I said, sure. What's a keynote? Because. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know at that point. I just kind of agreed to it. He's like, well, I'll get you in touch with uh, my administrator and we'll we'll figure everything out. And so then, the, you know, the next day I get this email and one of the questions that they asked was, you know, what do you need to prepare for this talk? And uh, what is your speaking fee? Right. I went, speaking fee? Like, I get to charge for this? And I didn't know. So, like, I'm madly Googling, how much do speakers make? Yeah. You know? And then when I'm seeing these numbers come back, like they they ranged anywhere from five hundred dollars to you know fifty thousand uh, dollars. I think at the time, um, Bill Clinton had just finished his two terms as president, and he, the, I saw that he was making uh, I think it was a hundred thousand or a hundred fifty thousand dollars a talk yeah. as a keynote presenter. And I went, that's ridiculous. So I, I just wrote down. Um, what my monthly salary was, yeah. and I sent it back to them, and they came back. They said, "Great, here you go." And that's the worst thing to hear when you send someone an invoice, or you know, you're, you're prospecting a job, and someone goes, "Great, that's fine." Like, damn, I could have charged more. I could have charged more, and that and that that became the pivot mm. to this new bit of of career when I realized that you know I could make in an hour what I made in a month exactly and I'll tell you right now <laughs> being an adult babysitter for guys who should know better in northern Alberta <laughs> is a hard way to make money yeah doesn't sound like much <laughs> but it's you know you're you're away from home and family three four weeks at a time and yeah. People don't like you as a safety officer, so. Well, you're killing the fun, man. People, people used to love it when people lose fingers on sight and stuff, and now you're there saying, you know, no, everybody needs to have ten fingers and ten toes. You know, it, it's really know. killing the fun. It, it's all fun and games until someone loses an eye, and then it's a career. <laughs> so yeah, no, okay. So you, you you've realized that you could you could talk for money, and you could make your monthly salary in a in yeah. a day or in an hour just from speaking and then what was the transition process like from there did you kind of work for six more months in the job or did you kind of go straight from there like what the hell am i doing in this job i need to do more of this speaking stuff well so you know there are signs within the universe that push you towards the places that you need to be right and 
um, I probably wouldn't have continued to pursue. I would have probably been very hobbyish for me, mm. if not for the fact that about four months later, mm. that project came to a grinding halt, and there there were um, some legal wrangling issues that actually took <laughs> eight years to to resolve in courts. But so I I found myself out of a job mm. a, about five months later. Right, right. And it was one of those things where, you know, I'd now had this new skill and I thought, well, let's just try it. Mm. You know, that what what do I have to lose? Because at that point, I had felt like I had lost everything already anyway. And so, it you know, I, that's what I did. I really focused on how do I make this a career and and it was a struggle I mean for my wife and I when all that happened we had just moved into a new house yeah because for a year prior to that I was making this mad oil money yeah and my my wife is a, a very accomplished uh, very successful project manager for one of the largest um, home and residential construction companies in the province and so we were making a, a very, very comfortable uh, six-figure wage, both of us. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a combined income, and at that point we didn't have any kids, you go, well, why not? Let's do this thing. And so we, you know, we put all of our money. She, she can design a house. So yeah. she, from the ground up, designed and oversaw the construction of our dream home. And... Uh, and that, you know, it took a nine months, I think, or eight months for it to, to build. So the, when we signed on the dotted line, we both had jobs that were paying a significant wage. Yeah. When we took possession of the house, within two months of taking possession of the house, uh, we found out we were pregnant. <laughs> and within Clearly putting of that house out, to good use. Yeah, <laughs> we, we were. <laughs> and, uh, and within two months of finding out we were pregnant, I was I was laid off and out of a job. Yeah. And then she was going on mat leave, you know, 5 months later. Yeah. So within the course of a year we went from this very very ridiculously comfortable multi six figure living situation mm. uh, to um uh, I think when we calculated it out we were less than 80% of our wage. Which is she insane. was on mat leave and I, and I wasn't making money. Yeah. So I had to put a, a go at it. And it took about two years for me to really figure out the secret sauce of, of actually getting in front of the people who were the decision makers because yeah. I lucked into it the first time. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, we lost we lost our house. The dream home is not where I'm living right now. Um, we are in a very beautiful home that my that we were able to purchase that we could afford, that my wife has renovated, that will probably be a forever home for us. But somebody else is living in my dream home and it burns me every once in a while when it's, I think about it. was about purpose it. built to you. But do you know what? It's one of those ones where you see your dream going one way, but it's like you said earlier, the universe has a way of making your dream happen the right way. Because if you yes. think about it previously, you'd have to wake up at, you know, say seven in the morning, 
get ready, go to this job, be there from nine till six, you get home, get in your car. Oh, I've left out the important part. In the middle of the day, you eat some cold kind of bit stale sandwich that you've brought from home. You come home, you're too tired to talk to your wife. You would have been too tired to play with your child. But now you have, I, I, I'm assuming here, but I also kind of know because of how entrepreneurship works, you have a little bit more freedom. Yeah, some days you work 10 times harder than you ever would in a nine to five. But you have the freedom. If you wanted to, you could take a month off, two months off, and no one's telling you you're fired. It's all your own time now. Well, and the nice thing is too, like when I I take time off, I actually never take time off. Yeah. You know, like and and I combine now my job and my career. Yeah. Um, I this summer, uh, unfortunately, the, it ended up getting canceled. But like one of the great joys of my job is that I can travel with my family and still get paid to work. Like I was yeah. supposed to go, um, in the end of or beginning of July down to Dallas and then over to, um, West Palm beach, Florida yeah. and, and do two events down there. And the promoter is a, a, a good friend and, and just a, a stand up human. <laughs> and he's like, uh, you know, is Kenzie in school right now? That's my daughter. Yeah. I said, no. He goes, oh, well, do you want to bring the family too? And so he was going to pay for me to come down, do these two events, yeah. and then pay. Uh, I think the one event was on a Wednesday and the next event was on a Thursday. And then he was going to pay for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday so that my wife and me could hang out in West Palm Beach and take my daughter to the to the beach and the downtown and and hang out and, and just be tourists in Florida and then come back. And the only thing that stopped that was that all of us, the promoter, myself and the family are Canadian. Yeah. And that's the U S and uh, Canada wouldn't let me Leave. fly to Florida yeah, in they, the middle of a pandemic. They kept you guys cooped up. And it's funny because I've, I think I said this quite a few times to other guests, but I've said it for the last about six, seven years, ever since I've decided to work for myself. There is no such thing as work-life balance. There's only no. life, right? Yes. And if you can optimize your life to include you making yep. money, seeing friends and family, feeling happy, then you're on to a winner. Oh, yeah. And and so for me to be able to be paid to travel and live with my family, I mean, it, it is the vision that I had. Mm. I had to prove that vision to my wife mm. initially because those first two years, I mean, they they were hard on us. Yeah. Right. They, and she was like, no, you've got to get a job. And I'm like, I don't think you understand that this is a job. She's like, ah, but you know, this is the money. And it was hard because it was that comparison of this was the money that we made. Mm. And she kind of gave me an ultimatum. She said, you have this amount of time to get back to your, what you used to make. Yeah. And if you can't make your company pay you what other companies did yeah then you have to go back to work most definitely and and i was like okay you know that's fair but i need the time so and again she is a a brilliant strategist my wife asks me the questions that i don't think of yeah and she challenges me a lot mm. did you think of this did you think of this and and because she is is constantly seeing my blind spots for me yeah 
it has made me a better entrepreneur and it has made us a, a better couple too, because she's not doing it because she doesn't believe in me. She's doing it because she believes in me and, and wants it to succeed and sees the freedom that I have. You know, we get to travel together to yeah. some really cool places. I, when I'm done this, like you were talking, you know, you get up, I was laughing. You're like, you get up seven in the morning. I'm like, <laughs> I get up at three 30 in the morning, right. you know, pour myself some tea. And then I, I'm on doing some form of media broadcast, usually at four or five in the morning yeah. and then, you know, doing whatever, but I've, I've structured my day. You and I are going to get off this podcast yeah. and then I am going to go upstairs, wake up my daughter and get her ready for school, get her over to the school bus, yeah. um, wave goodbye to her, come back, get in my truck drive to the rink and I'm going to go play hockey oh, for two hours. See the freedom. It's amazing. Isn't yeah. it? Middle of the day. I'm going to go do that. Then I'm going to come back. I'm going to have a strategy meeting with my team. I have two more podcasts that I have to record. And then I'm going to make dinner. Yeah. Get my daughter from the bus. We will eat dinner. And then I have a game tonight. So I'm, I'm, you know, doing my practice in the day and then I'm going to go and play hockey at night. And I get to, I get to have the freedom to do that. Plus I'm a goalie and goalie gear isn't cheap. Yeah. So I could afford <laughs> to, to buy the goalie gear, yeah. have this as a little bit of a hobby. Be, and the great thing is, is while I'm on ice, I won't be being paid by the hockey team, but I'll still be making money. Yeah. You know, right now I've got the, the business up to a point where I'm making money no matter what I'm doing. Yeah. And that's a remarkable feeling. Mm. And I love that. I love, I love the freedom that I have to spend that time with my daughter. And I love that the way that I make money is helping other people. I, I think that's the most rewarding thing, being able to see other people have that evolution within themselves where they are able to take a stage and tell their story in a compelling manner that they didn't feel they could do two, three days previous to that. Yeah. How do you help people find out what their story is? Because obviously I'd say people like me and you, where, where you've spent a lot of time speaking to other people, being interviewed by other people, you kind of know how to tell your story in whichever order it comes up, whether you want to start off at the hardest bit or start off at the beginning and finish at the end or start at the end and finish at the middle, all that kind of stuff. But most people never think about their lives in that regard because they're so focused on just get to work. Okay, I've got drinks on Friday, but get to work, go home, eat dinner, fall asleep, get to, you know, get to whatever, da, 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 da. they're so focused on that that they don't really know how to tell their story in a nice, cohesive way. Well, I think the first thing for people to do is, as you said, nobody really ever takes the time to analyze their life. Mm. And that's usually the first start. One of the things that we do in all of my workshops is um, sit down and we break people's life into five even time periods. Right. And it's real simple to do. Like we use grade three math. You remember when you um, divide to the even and then you'd have remainders? Yeah. Yeah. So we just take your life, divide it by five and divide it to the whole. Right. And then you have the little remainder. So like I'm 42. So if I divide, should have never told us that five, Tyler, you look, you look like a young man. Okay. I know we're right? going with I, it now. Moisturizer. <laughs> moisturizer. Um, but you know, you divide by, um, five. And for me, that gives me 
five even time periods of eight and a, a remainder of two. So you tack that onto the beginning. Always tack on your remainder onto the beginning. Yeah. Because the likelihood is you don't remember a lot from your first year or two. Mm. Um, it drives my wife crazy because I'm one of those people who legitimately has memories from like 11 months, 12 months old. Um, and, uh, but they're not, you know, they're not the super significant ones. They're just kind of fleeting memories. Just so you flashes tack on of moments. Those flashes of moments. So you tack on the remainder onto the first time period or epoch. And, uh, and then you just look at those five time periods of your life mm. and ask yourself, what is my most significant memory? Yeah. Like if I, if you were to do it right now and say your first time period is, is from zero to 10, mm what you know what's the one memory that pops out yeah. and you just write it down mm. and it doesn't have to, you know you, we are not analyzing it for is it good is it bad is it happy is it sad that's not the point the point is if i say between zero and ten what is the the biggest memory that you have what is the one thing that pops to your mind right now when i say it everybody has it yeah because i'm forcing you now to do an analysis mm. and then we move to the next time period what's your most significant memory and you write it down and you and we so by the end of the exercise and it really shouldn't take more than five or ten minutes yeah as you're saying you're it, i'm thinking have... it in my head right now i'm thinking okay 10 this happened 15 that happened 20 i'm thinking oh yeah i'm seeing how this works type thing yeah and, it, and it's very very it's a it's it's a really quick process and then the the harder part of the process is then the analysis so once you have these five memories written down now you write down why are they significant? Mm. Like, what is it about it that stands out? And, and that's when that deep thinking process happens. And that's how you start to find your story, because what is the significance of it? And then um, Les Brown famously has said, never tell a story without a point, never make a point without a story. Right. So you now that you've discovered what your story is, and why it's significant, what are the points that that story serves? And they could be multiple. And why is it going to be important to your audience? How do you serve your audience with this story? You know, what are the lessons that you've learned from them? And again, I would caution people, these stories don't have to be tragic. And your story doesn't have to be a Michael Bay Hollywood blockbuster with explosions and car flips to be exciting. Yeah. I can make eating lunch sound inviting. Mm. Right? It's uh, what happens is is once you've explored the why, now we explore the details. Uh, when I was working with Bo Eason, one of the greatest things that I ever learned from him was that the more detailed your story is, mm the more universal it will speak to your audience. Right. So like right now, I could tell you about lunch yesterday. Right? Go for it. Let's hear about lunch yesterday. Yeah. And I could say, you know, I had a peanut butter sandwich on the deck. Yeah. Right. That doesn't invite you into my life. No. Or I could say midway through the day yesterday, I found myself starving and I needed something that was both quick but satisfying. Because it was one of those days where I had given my all in the morning and knew that I needed energy to get through the afternoon. And as I looked outside from my kitchen window, I noticed how beautiful a day it was in stark contrast to the day previous when it had rained. 
and the grass was greener than usual because it was freshly moisturized and and I could tell with the color of the blueness of the sky that it would just be warm out and inviting out on my deck. So I looked through the pantry and noticed that as my wife had gone shopping for groceries, she'd gotten the chunky peanut butter instead of the smooth. And I thought, you know, I haven't had a good peanut butter sandwich in probably 10 years. So I carefully grabbed some bread and instead of going with the regular white bread, I chose the artisan bread that my wife had gotten from the bakery, the nice 12 whole grain bread. And I made sure to spread the peanut butter so that every corner of the bread had been covered. And I thought, you know what, let's make this extra thick. So one more layer of peanut butter was spread so that I could see each individual nut as it was laid down in its chunky spread. And then I thought, you know, I'm always a strawberry jam guy. It's late summer, let's get crazy. And so I looked through the pantry and noticed that we had from the farmer's market, this really nice blackberry and Saskatoon berry spread. And I thought, Let's use that instead. And as I took my sandwich out to the deck and sat in my lounger, I savored the first bite and realized that it was the perfect way to enjoy this summer day. Or I could say I went and had a sandwich on my on my deck. So much more captivating to do things like that. And I feel like it's it's a it's such an art form that you could just do it on on request like that. And I feel like one thing that people never really allow themselves to do is to actually experience, no, not even experience, to organize and retell their thoughts in the way that they were experienced. They normally try to boil it down to, this is what happened. No, no, no. Start from the beginning, spend a long time building up to the the climax and then let it end is the best way yeah. to tell someone about what's happened, surely. And and that is kind of the, the point of, of finding those details. Mm. Because I could, you know, as you said, I could distill it into an, an essence and give it to you. But if I was to ask you to eat chicken or beef stock directly from the OXO cube, it's salty as hell. And you're going to go, Ugh, this is bitter. So a distilled essence is sometimes doesn't necessarily serve us. But if I drop that OXO cube into, you know, couple of liters of water yeah suddenly i have a beautiful broth that can serve 10 people and we can savor yeah and it's that it's it's taking the moment to savor those flavors and let them really release and you can do that with your story by mm -hmm. finding the details and explaining why this is important to you and that's what brings the audience in mm. right they the that old saying stats tell but stories sell yeah if I just, the stat was, I went and ate a sandwich on my deck. Yeah. But if I give you the story behind it, first of all, why did I choose a peanut butter sandwich? Why yeah. not a ham and cheese? Mm. Right. And now you understand that it's because my wife had just recently gone to the grocery store and, and the farmer's market. Yeah. And those are all those important details that need to come out. Yeah. And by giving somebody the details, that that's the meat yeah. of it. And really diving deep into your story. And and I was talking about a peanut butter sandwich. The whole time. Right? 
So I don't, and if that's the other thing, it doesn't need to be this great, exciting thing. It just needs to be important to you, yeah. right? The, the, the essence of that story was I, I decided to go outside and take a break and enjoy one of probably the last nice days that we're going to have here Yeah, because it was important to me. And, and believe it or not, the sandwich really was the piece de la resistance as I sat in my Adirondack chair yeah. and went, this is just a good day. Like, I really took the time to slowly savor that sandwich, including the fact that it was chunky peanut butter. Like, it added a texture to it, and it was chunky peanut butter with the 12-grain bread. And I was like, this is... I should do this more often. And and that's why giving the details is important. So anybody can make any story exciting. You just yeah. have to provide context to why it mattered to you. Yeah. And, okay, let's, let's say that you've got your story in order. So you spent all this time in private getting your story together. You know the beats that you want to hit and you're going to say what you're going to say in between to get to those certain beats. You've got yourself booked in some kind of speaking engagement or you've decided to go forward to do Toastmasters, which is, you know, just glorified speech giving for speech giving sake. Mm -hmm. You think to yourself, yeah, I'm confident enough. Okay, I'm going to get there. Then a couple minutes before or maybe even the day of panic strikes, right? The stage fright is setting in, the walls are closing in. Now, obviously, when you're teaching people how to tell their story and how to speak, you are also teaching them how to do that on the stage. And some people mm -hmm. do get stage fright. So how do you overcome stage fright? Oh, and I'm so glad that you called it stage fright and not a fear of public speaking. Because as we've already discussed, nobody has a fear of public speaking or society would collapse. But stage fright is a real, real thing. Mm. And stage fright comes from a fear of public judgment. Mm. So the first thing that I'm doing is, is helping people break down that fear. Mm. And one of the reasons why we focus so much on you finding your stories yeah. is because it's really hard to blank on your story. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I can instantly recall the details of a peanut butter sandwich that I ate because I ate the peanut butter sandwich. Yeah. I don't have to make something up on the fly. I just have to do a memory recall. Yeah. And usually where people's fear comes from where stage fright emanates from is this fear that i'm going to forget the words mm. usually so it's i'm going to forget the words and i'm afraid that the word or i'm afraid that the words that i'm going to use are going to be judged negatively right. so we're afraid of public judgment and we're afraid of failure mm. and the fastest way to combat both of those is to just tell your own story right because you, no one knows your story better than you, yeah. which makes you the authority of your story. Mm -hmm. And the audience doesn't know what you're going to say. They never do. Even the people, like I've had a few people who have come back to a few of my workshops or like they'll work through, you know, they'll, they'll read the book um, and then they'll maybe come to a, a one hour or two hour presentation that I have. And then they'll sign up for the two and a half day seminar and then they come to the five-day workshop mm. and i'm not saying anything different yeah in any of those it's just i spend more time exploring the themes of each one but my content really boils down to five key points mm. and it's just how much time do we get to explore and really work with you one-on-one -on -one? you know with the book i'm, I'm not seeing you at all yeah i'm giving you information um in the one hour or two hour talk you, you know you get to hear it with a little bit more context from my 
voice, but you're still not getting the one-on-one -on -one stuff. When you start getting into the workshops and the seminar, now I get to do it. When I get my private coaching clients, whether they're in with me for six months or a year, and I never work with people beyond a year, because at that point, if I haven't served a purpose, I haven't done you a service. Yeah. Uh, so, you You're know, just most a friend clients, for hire now. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly it. Um, I, I should be able to pass you on to the next level, right? Yeah. Like I don't, people don't stay in elementary school for their entire school career, yeah, right? No. They graduate into junior and then senior high. Uh, and I feel the same way. And then on to university, like I, I'm just elementary school yeah. for you. I'm giving you the basics and moving on. So when I'm working with these people, the co my content doesn't change. It's yeah. just how much access do you and I have. Mm. And so what I tell people is that you are the authority of your own story. It's real easy for people to pick apart you telling somebody else's story. Yeah. Because they may know the details better than you mm. because they've studied it. Yeah. But nobody can challenge you on your story. So you can stand on your own two feet in your own spotlight and say, no, this is how it was. Yeah. I know because I was there. Mm -hmm. So the best way to combat stage fright is tell your own story. Yeah. Most people uh, experience stage fright because they're desperately trying to memorize pages and pages of text, which serves you no good. Yeah. Again, you can recall all the details of your story and you can truncate it or you can expand it as necessary so that you can fill that time. So like my stories, I could probably make that peanut butter sandwich story stretch out two hours if I needed to. And I could chunk it down into 10 or 20 seconds. It's just the more detail you can give in that time period, the better it's going to serve your audience. Hmm. But I, you being able to come back to your story is what is going to make it easier for you to remember. And then you're not having to memorize script. You're just having to memorize beats like this. I'm going to tell this story because it serves this point. And then I'm going to tell this story because it serves this point. And by memorizing sequences as opposed to entire scripts, now yeah. you have the ability and flexibility to pivot, mm. right? So if you need me to wrap this story up right now, Sam, yeah. I can be like, great. And then now my point is served. And I, I'm not stuck on a script where it, I have to get to the end of this or it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So we've got to the stage. We're given our speech. We have no stage fright whatsoever. But we've looked around and we've realized we're not that engaging. One person's on their phone over there. Another person's got up to go to the toilet. Someone else has gone outside for a cigarette. How do we become more engaging? as a speaker. So the first thing to, to remember is the, the, you know, the best offense is a good defense and the best defense is a good offense. So one of the first things you want to do is um, make sure that your audience doesn't get to that point. Mm. And the ways to re-engage your audience are the same ways to engage your audience. Mm. And one of the first things to remember is that you need to engage your audience. Um, so many people make the amateur mistake of feeling that if they have been asked to speak, that they have to do all the talking. And the reality is, if you've been asked to be on stage, you are the expert, you are the authority. And that's one of the ways to get over stage fright is recognizing that you are the authority or they wouldn't have asked you. So mm. no one else would have known more than you 
on this topic yeah. uh, or you wouldn't have been asked. So take that and, and build from that to begin with. But your job as an expert is just to lead the conversation. Yeah. Right, Sam? Like, this is your show. Yeah. You're asking me questions, but this is your show. It's your platform. Yeah. Nobody, it's it's not Tyler explained, you know, or people explained with Tyler. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's It's people explained with Sam. Yeah. You are the expert on your show. This is your platform. Mm. But you've done all, you know, what, maybe 10% of the talking? Yeah. Because you've brought me on as a guest. You're leading the conversation, but you know where it needs to go. Mm. And we can do that same thing on stage where I know what I need to present. Yeah. But I'm going to ask my audience how this information is going to serve them best and let them guide how much of this that I share. Right. And that's the other thing. So many people think that they need to cram 30 points into this presentation, you know, and if it's a 30 minute presentation, that's a point a minute. Well, that's drinking information through a fire hose and you're probably not presenting it well. Mm. I would rather present one takeaway so well that nobody forgets it than 30 takeaways poorly that nobody remembers. Mm. Like, don't be afraid to get very niche, very specific, and focus in on one thing. Yeah. And ask your audience for input. So, first of all, ask them, you know, what does this mean to you? Like, what, what is the significance of this? Uh, who, who knows stuff about this topic? Yeah. Right? Who, who here knows stuff? Who here has no clue? Mm. That will get some idea. And then have the people who know stuff share. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. You know, this was my experience with it. How do you feel about that? Yeah. And then you can engage in some, you know, controlled discourse because again, you are the authority. You control the information. If somebody's agreeing with you, then you can use that to support you. If somebody disagrees with you, you can use that as a learning opportunity to either change your point of view and say, I had never considered that, or change their point of view by saying, you know, I remember a time when I felt that to be true as well. But then with this new information that came to light that I've discovered X, Y, Z, I now see that this may not be correct. Mm. Do you see how that could be? And now, right now I'm always throwing it back to the audience, making sure that they see it. So you don't lose them yeah. because they're engaged. One of the other tricks that I use, and I overuse this, by the way, mm. you cannot go to one of my presentations, no matter if it's a 15 minute talk or a five day workshop. Yeah. At some point, you're going to hear me, Sam, say, now turn to a partner and tell them what you what the biggest takeaway you just got from that last section was. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm always going to, to do that. Yeah. Because it is the most effective tool to get people to engage in what you're saying, have active recall of the lessons that they're learning, and reinforce your messaging to the other people. And it gives you a, a moment to break and reset. If you're really clever and you've got the room set up right, it even allows you to travel through the room and hear what some of these responses are so that you can gauge how well you have communicated your idea. Yeah. Because if you've said, you know, what was your big takeaway? And they're talking about something that has nothing to do with what you just did. Yeah. You can go, oh, I, you know, I thought I was doing good, but obviously they didn't hear me. So, mm. And, or you can check to see that, yeah, no, it really did land. So I, you know, there are so many different ways if they want. I've, <laughs> we've got two chapters dedicated to 
in the book. No. So anybody who wants can go and pick up a copy of The Power to Speak Naked and, and flip to chapters six and eight, I think. And yeah. you will have a, a, a myriad of tools in your toolbox to engage and re-engage your audience. What advice would you give to those wanting to get into public speaking? To just do it. Um, you know, it's one of those things. I can want six-pack abs all that I want. And I can gain all the theoretical knowledge. You know, I could, I could watch a thousand exercise videos. But if I don't actually get up and do a crunch... I'm never going to tone my abs. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I actually physically have to move it. You have to do the thing. And for the people who are terrified of public speaking, the easiest way to conquer your fear is to just do it and realize that it wasn't as bad as you thought. Yeah. And so start seeking those opportunities. Mm. And they're they're simple. And and start to recognize the number of times you actually speak in public. Mm. Right. The next time you are um, getting change from your barista at Starbucks, mm. you just spoke in public. Acknowledge every time and start to notice how often in a public setting you are having a conversation with at least one other person. And the more you can do that, the more you recognize that you are speaking in public. And as you start to get opportunities to tell your story, even if it's just at the house and you're, you're recounting with your spouse or your loved one, how your day was mm. start to try and give them the details you wouldn't normally. Yeah. And the more you do it, the more you learn to use that muscle, the more familiar it becomes, the more at ease you become. One of the things we talk about in, in all of my training sessions is that I believe you gain confidence through competence. Mm. And the only way to get competent at something is to do it enough that it becomes second nature. Right. So you have to seek out those opportunities. And trust me, because 77% of people claim to have anxiety around public speaking, the opportunities are plenty to, because they are, nobody wants to give the presentation in the boardroom. Yeah. So if you start saying to your boss, hey, I'd, I'd kind of like to give um, next quarter sales stats, if you don't mind, or yeah. I'd like to do that presentation, you start volunteering. First of all, it's a fast track to, um, to leadership and promotion. If you're willing to speak in public, you can increase your earning potential by 10% and the likelihood that you'll get a promotion to a, a management level by 15% yeah. into, into some form of leadership level. So you can increase your, your wage potential and you can increase your potential for getting a promotion just by taking on the task of public speaking. And that if that isn't worth it to people, then I don't know what will be. So just take the opportunities as they come because they are plentiful and you can you can get it. Here's a few more words from Tyler. The first thing I would ask them to do is, is go look in the show notes and because that's going to require them to hit pause on this and and look at the nice little people explained logo. <laughs> and while they're doing that, they'll notice that in the show notes, they can find my uh, my website and all the information to get to me. But they can also, you know, rate your show, Sam. Oh, yeah, so perfect. if they're going to look in the show notes anyways, they might as well take a moment and give you a five-star review. Oh, thank you so and, much. And tell them, you know, have them tell you what their favorite episode was. So I want them to go back and, and listen to a few more episodes, not just this one. You know, I'm not asking them to stroke my ego. 
But uh, go back and, and review a couple of the episodes. Tell you what your favorite one was so that you can help steer and guide the content for the show going forward and really help um, people get the most out of People Explained. And once they've given you the five-star review and they've noted in the show notes that they can go to seantylerfoley.com, which is spelled the proper Irish way, S-E-A-N-T-Y-L-E-R-F-O-L-E-Y, seantylerfoley.com. Uh, if they go there, we have a whole bunch of resources that are available to them. So any of your listeners who aren't People Explained can go to, um, they can download the method for free, which is a five-page document, uh, or an 11-page document with five insider secrets that I've put together over 35 years of public speaking. And, and so if they are wondering about, you know, just how do they find those opportunities and start to step into their comfort zone public speaking, that document will be a quick help and it's my free gift to your listeners so they all they have to do is enter in their email and we'll send it over to them for free and they'll be able to get that so seantylerfully.com and my book the power to speak naked is in bookstores throughout the world yeah. right now and if they feel like they want to do a little bit of online shopping well they can go to jeff bezos's site and order it or they can go to barnes and noble or <laughs> whatever yeah. they want there's there's so many ways to get the book so um you know i'm happy to to make that available to them and they can find out all that information on the website as well thank you for listening to people explained new episodes come out every monday we would appreciate it if you gave us a review on apple podcasts and shared this episode with a friend